Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. Season 7 of Jury Duty focuses on two sexual assault trials, the trials of Harvey Weinstein and Danny Masterson, that are currently taking place at the same time, on the same floor of the Clara Shortridge Fultz Criminal Courts building in downtown Los Angeles. Two times per week, on Mondays and Thursdays, you will hear new episodes with the reports from journalists who are in the courtrooms as these trials are happening. On today's episode, we hear more from our correspondents about dramatic witness testimony in each trial. That's all coming up right after the break. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. We begin today's installment with Brittany Bookbinder and her look at witness testimony from one of the alleged victims in the Los Angeles trial of Danny Masterson. In our last episode, I summarized the beginning of the Masterson trial, including opening statements, the testimony of Jane Doe 1, and the testimony of two witnesses who spoke with Jane Doe 1 about the incident shortly after it happened. We pick up the trial on the afternoon of Monday, October 24th. Jane Doe 3, who wore a crisp white button-down shirt under a long black sweater and black slacks, took the stand. Unlike the other victims in this case, Jane Doe 3 was in a romantic relationship with Danny Masterson for six years prior to the alleged incidents of sexual assault. Deputy DA Reinhold Mueller conducted direct examination. Jane Doe 3 testified that she met Masterson when she was 18 years old. At that time, she had been modeling for about four years and had just landed a big job, a Revlon contract, where she would appear alongside Cindy Crawford. Her agent threw a party to celebrate. Danny Masterson and his friends crashed the party. That night, Masterson told Jane Doe 3 that he had a crush on her. Soon after, he asked her out on a date. She testified that when he arrived to pick her up for their first date, she hid in her roommate's bedroom for several hours. Eventually, Masterson left. She testified that her roommate guilted her into going out with him after that. After two weeks of dating, Jane Doe 3 moved into Masterson's house, where he lived with his mother and siblings. She testified that one reason she moved in was because she felt bad for his younger siblings as their mother was often out of town because of her involvement with Scientology. Jane Doe 3 testified that prior to meeting Masterson, she had never heard of Scientology. Five months into dating, Masterson made it clear to her that she must become a Scientologist in order for their relationship to go on. Jane Doe 3 began taking courses. She testified that she was told that her parents were suppressive people. Soon, she testified, her entire life became, quote, him, his friends and family, and his church, end quote. Mueller then asked Jane Doe 3 about several incidents involving Masterson before getting to the count of rape. First, Jane Doe 3 testified that Masterson became, quote, sexually aggressive, end quote, after what has become known as the Paris incident. Jane Doe 3 testified that, sometime in 2001, she returned from a trip to Paris feeling sick, tired, and jet-lagged. She said, quote, He wanted to have sex, and I didn't, and it resulted in a fight where he dragged me by the hair of my head across our bedroom floor. He called me fat, end quote. Mueller asked how frequently this sort of thing would happen. She said, quote, It happened. It became pretty regular. Most of the time, I would just let it happen. 
It would get to the point where if I made it an issue, he would ignore me for a day or two after, to the point where I would go groveling and apologize to him, end quote. When asked about other physical incidents, Jane Doe 3 testified that Masterson would urinate on her. When asked whether this happened once or more than once, Jane Doe 3 responded, quote, all the time. I would be in the shower and he would think it was funny. It wouldn't be an anger, like he thought it was funny, end quote. Jane Doe 3 also described a violent incident in October of 2001 that started outside the Standard Hotel bar. Jane Doe 3 and Masterson were at the bar with several friends. Outside, they walked behind an actress and her husband. Jane Doe 3 testified that Masterson screamed at the actress, quote, these really disgusting things at her, like sexual things, degrading things, end quote. The actress's husband eventually turned around and started to beat Masterson up. Jane Doe 3 testified that she left with her friend and went to get something to eat. When she returned home later that night, she testified that Masterson was, quote, really, really angry, end quote. She said, quote, I had never seen him like that. He got in my face. He was screaming at me, and he kept telling me that I abandoned him. Next, Mueller asked Jane Doe 3 about the incident in November 2001, which is a count in this case. Jane Doe 3 testified that she had been asleep and woke up to Masterson, quote, having sex with her. She testified that she said to him, quote, no, I don't want to have sex, end quote. She testified that she said this, quote, many times, he wouldn't stop, end quote. She testified that she tried to push him off of her and that he held her arms back. She testified that she was able to get one hand free, her left hand, which she used to pull his hair. She explained, quote, he has rules, and he would say this to me and everyone, no touch face rule, no touch hair rule. He was very sensitive over his hair, so I felt like if I pulled his hair, that would get him off of me, end quote. She testified that when she pulled his hair, Masterson hit her. It wasn't a punch, she said. She raised her hand and held it in a loose fist to demonstrate. On that dramatic note, Monday's testimony concluded. The next day, Jane Doe 3 returned to the stand. Deputy DA Mueller asked her about an incident the following month, which we covered in the first episode of this season. To briefly recap that incident, Jane Doe 3 and Masterson went to La Poubelle, a restaurant in Los Angeles, in December of 2001. Jane Doe 3 had a glass or two of wine with dinner. The last thing she remembered was standing up to leave. The next morning, she woke up in pain. She asked Masterson what had happened the night before. He laughed at her and said that he had had sex with her. She asked him if she was unconscious. He said yes. On the stand last Tuesday, Jane Doe 3 testified that she had not consumed any alcoholic beverages prior to arriving at the restaurant, nor had she taken any medication. She testified that when she woke up the following day, her whole body hurt, and specifically her, quote, anal area, end quote. She testified that it was torn and injured. She testified that when Masterson laughed at her and told her that she had been unconscious the whole time, it broke her heart. She testified that she told Masterson she was going to report him to the Scientology Celebrity Center because, quote, ultimately, I wanted them to help him, end quote. She testified that she did not consider going to the police because the Church of Scientology has a justice system that members are supposed to report to. She testified that she told Miranda Scoggins, an ethics officer within the Church of Scientology, that Masterson had raped her. Scoggins responded that she must not use the word rape and that Jane Doe 3 had, quote, done something to cause it, end quote. Jane Doe 3 also spoke with Chris Scoggins, the chaplain. She testified, quote, I remember he made me read something, and then he explained to me that it was my job as his girlfriend. Basically, if I didn't say no, it wouldn't happen, end quote. She testified that she was ordered to complete an ethics program. She understood that if she disobeyed their instructions, she'd be labeled a suppressive person. 
When Mueller asked, quote, what were you worried would happen if you didn't follow the program, end quote, she responded, quote, they would destroy me, end quote. At this point, Jane Doe 3 began to have a panic attack. When Judge Olmedo asked if she wanted to take a break, Jane Doe 3 responded, quote, I don't want to go out there. I don't want to go out there, end quote. At that point, Judge Olmedo called for a sidebar while an advocate helped Jane Doe 3 to calm down. When direct examination resumed, Jane Doe 3 testified that she was going to write a knowledge report, as Jane Doe 1 had done, but Miranda Scoggins would not let her. Instead, Scoggins had her write a things-that-shouldn't-be report. Similar to Jane Doe 1, Jane Doe 3 was prevented from including any human emotion and reaction in her report. Soon after this incident, Jane Doe 3 broke up with Masterson. She testified that, over the course of the following year, she and Masterson remained in touch and had been intimate on several occasions. On one occasion, Jane Doe 1 testified that she saw a camera flash go off in the dark. She asked Masterson to delete the photograph, and he refused. Mueller asked her, quote, What did you feel about that? The defense objected, and the objection was overruled. Jane Doe 3 replied, quote, He cannot change, end quote. Finally, Mueller asked, Quote, since you reported, have you experienced harassment or stalking or anything like that? End quote. The defense objected. The objection was overruled, but Judge Olmedo told the jury that this evidence was being admitted as a hearsay exception, not for the truth of the matter asserted, but for the effect on the listener. Jane Doe 3 responded that she had experienced harassment and stalking. Mueller asked, quote, and has that been going on currently? End quote. Jane Doe 3 responded, quote, today. End quote. No mention was made of what happened that day. On cross-examination, Cohen questioned Jane Doe 3 about statements she made to authorities following these incidents. He put up a slide with a list of names and dates, indicating that she spoke with her husband about an incident in 2011, that she called a rape hotline in the fall of 2016, that she spoke with police in Austin, Texas, where she was living in December of 2016, and that she had spoken with LAPD detectives Reyes and Vargas and Deputy DA Mueller over the next two years. Cohen asked Jane Doe 3 if she had been truthful in her interactions with police. She testified, quote, I've always been truthful, end quote. Cohen then drilled down on several details of Jane Doe 3's story, starting with her statement that Masterson had held her arms back during the November 2001 incident. Cohen asked, quote, you told the jury that he had pushed your arm back at a 90-degree angle, end quote. Jane Doe 3 responded, quote, I didn't say that. Mr. Mueller said that, and I said correct, end quote. Cohen then clarified, well, let me ask you, did he push your arms back at a 90-degree angle? She responded, quote, I'm really bad at math and angles, end quote. She once again held her arms up, demonstrating how they were held back. Cohen asked if Jane Doe 3 had relayed this detail in previous interviews. She testified that she didn't know, but indicated that she had not specifically been asked about it. Cohen then asked about Jane Doe 3's assertion that Masterson had pressured her to stop working in favor of having a more traditional family. He asked Jane Doe 3 about a movie she had been cast in and an appearance she had made on that 70s show. At that point, Judge Olmedo sent the jury out of the room. Judge Olmedo explained, quote, I cut off Mr. Mueller when he tried to go into her career because the defense is trying to portray her as a freeloader, end quote. Cohen was quick to clarify that that was not his intention, and in fact, he wanted to show the opposite. He said that he's rebutting the inference that this is a controlling relationship. Ultimately, Judge Olmedo said that she would limit both sides in asking about Jane Doe 3's career. Later, when Jane Doe 3 returned to the stand, Cohen said, quote, I prefer not to ask about someone's sex life, but since you raised it, I need to ask some questions, end quote. He said, quote, as your relationship developed, the sex became kind of robotic. Is that a good word to use, end quote? She said no. Cohen asked, 
Did you feel it became less loving? Jane Doe 3 responded, quote, I don't believe it was ever loving, end quote. Perhaps the greatest impact of Cohen's cross-examination of Jane Doe 3 came when he returned to the December 2001 incident at La Poubelle. He asked Jane Doe 3 if, in other incidents, she ever drank to the point of blacking out. Jane Doe 3 testified that she never blacked out, but that she would, on some occasions, drink and not remember the whole night. She clarified that she might forget where she left her keys, or might wonder what she had said and if she had embarrassed herself. Cohen, seizing on this point, asked about her memory of the December 2001 incident. She testified that she didn't remember how she left the restaurant or how she got up the stairs to her house. He asked Jane Doe 3 if she had told law enforcement initially that she had had sex with Masterson after they broke up. She testified that she didn't specifically remember the questions that the detectives and the deputy DA had asked her in interviews. Notably, as it concerns Jane Doe 1's case, Jane Doe 3 testified that when she lived with Masterson, he owned a registered firearm. On redirect, Mueller asked if she had been nervous in the interviews with detectives, presumably to explain the absence of certain details in her earlier statements. She testified that when she spoke to police, she was terrified. He asked about whether the civil suit is related to the stalking and harassment she's experienced. Jane Doe 3 responded, quote, It's related to this terror campaign that this criminal organization has put upon me and my family. Because it doesn't matter how many police reports, how many FBI reports I file, no one would stop them, and they're doing it to this day, end quote. The court then reminded the jury that this evidence is not being admitted for the truth of the matter asserted, but for the effect on the listener. On recross, Cohen asked once more about her testimony about Masterson holding her arms back during the November 2001 incident and whether she had told Detective Vargas. She testified that she believed she did tell him. After nearly three days of grueling testimony, Jane Doe 3 was excused but placed on call. The jury would also hear from Jane Doe 3's husband, but before that, the prosecution called a witness pertaining to Jane Doe 1's case. For the purposes of clarity, I'm going to skip ahead to the testimony of Jane Doe 3's husband, then circle back to the police officer who testified about Jane Doe 1's allegations. On the afternoon of Friday, October 28th, Cedric Z, Jane Doe 3's husband, took the stand. He was questioned by Deputy DA Anson on direct examination. Soft-spoken, with a shock of dark hair and a salt-and-pepper beard, Cedric testified that in 2010 or 2011, Jane Doe 3 told him about the unconscious incident from December of 2001. When asked about her demeanor, he testified that, quote, it seemed like she was controlled by remote, end quote. He explained, quote, it means that when she was describing her relationship and a certain incident, she was holding back. She was not necessarily forthcoming about everything. She seemed afraid, end quote. He testified that in reaction to this statement, he became angry. Anson asked how he expressed his anger. Cedric replied, quote, by telling her that she had been raped, end quote. Anson asked him if Jane Doe 3 had told him about an incident where she had been hit. He testified, quote, I recall that she said she had been hit, slapped, I believe, and that she fought him off and pulled his hair, end quote. When Anson asked whether he had been stalked or harassed, the defense objected and Judge Almeida sent the jury out of the room. Judge Almeida ordered Deputy D.A. Anson to instruct Cedric about what was admissible pertaining to the civil suit. When the jury returned, Anson asked whether the stalking was coming from the Church of Scientology. Cedric said yes. He testified that it started around the time Jane Doe 3 reported her case to the Austin PD and has not stopped. On cross-examination, Cohen asked Cedric Z whether he had spoken to his wife about his testimony. He said that he had not. Cedric indicated that he believed it was common sense not to speak to her about it. Cohen jumped on this. 
presumably to cast doubt on the credibility of Jane Doe 1 and Jane Doe 3, who testified that they had spoken with the other victims in this case. Cohen asked, quote, You're saying it's common sense not to talk to witnesses? End quote. Cedric testified, quote, Not to witnesses in general, but not to talk to her. End quote. He indicated that he didn't know he would be a witness until recently. Cohen then asked about Cedric's statements to law enforcement and how Jane Doe 3 described waking up from the unconscious incident in December of 2001. Cedric testified that he believed she woke up feeling hungover. He testified that he couldn't recall whether he had told Detective Vargas about other incidents, including the November 2001 incident. He acknowledged that the detective's report made no mention of other incidents. On redirect, Anson returned to Cedric's interview with Detective Vargas. Cedric testified that the interview lasted for 15 to 20 minutes, and that he was only asked about one conversation with his wife, in which she told him about the unconscious incident in December of 2001. He couldn't recall whether Vargas had asked him about other incidents of sexual assault or domestic abuse. Before Cedric took the stand, toward the end of the day on Thursday, October 27th, the prosecution's fifth witness, Detective Alexander Schlegel, took the stand. Detective Schlegel, who had been Officer Schlegel when Jane Doe 1 reported her story in 2004, entered the courtroom in his police uniform. On direct examination, Deputy DA Mueller asked Schlegel about his experience with taking reports. He testified that, in 2004, he had taken over 100 reports, but only half a dozen sexual assault reports. As Mueller took him through Jane Doe 1's story, Schlegel frequently asked to consult his written report. Notably, Schlegel testified that Jane Doe 1 had not mentioned that Masterson had brandished a gun. Schlegel did not remember whether or not he had gone into his computer system to see if Masterson had a registered firearm, and conceded that it was possible he may have. On cross-examination the following day, Cohen asked Schlegel about his experience in an apparent effort to show that he was qualified to take a competent report. Schlegel testified that Jane Doe 1 did not provide any photographs at the time of the report. On redirect, Mueller asked whether Schlegel had asked how the witnesses on Jane Doe 1's report, including Bree Schaefer, Jenny Weinman, and Luke Watson, were relevant to Jane Doe 1's allegation of assault. Schlegel testified that it would be fair to say he didn't ask. Finally, at the end of the day on Friday, October 28th, the prosecution called Detective Deborah Myers, an LAPD detective who Jane Doe 1 spoke to in 2004, two days after she spoke with Officer Schlegel. Myers testified that in the hours leading up to the April 2003 incident, Jane Doe 1 told her that she had had a drink at a birthday party and later found out it was a triple. Then, at Masterson's house, Jane Doe 1 said she had a vodka fruit punch drink. Myers corroborated some of the details that Jane Doe 1 provided, including that she felt dizzy, that Masterson carried her upstairs, that after she vomited, Masterson put her in the shower, and that she passed out in Masterson's bed and woke up to him having sex with her. She corroborated the detail that Masterson pushed a pillow onto Jane Doe 1's face and that Jane Doe 1 reached for something to hit him with. However, Myers' report makes no mention of a gun. On cross-examination, Myers testified that Jane Doe 1 never mentioned a gun. Defense attorney Karen Goldstein asked whether Myers was aware if charges were filed as a result of the 2004 report. Myers testified the charges were not filed. After the jury was dismissed for the day, Judge Almeida indicated that she gave the defense leeway to say that the charges were not filed in 2004, but instructed the defense not to refer to the 2004 case as a reject. She said, quote, The defense's argument is that Jane Doe 1 did not get charges and so colluded with the other Jane Doe's in order to get charges and file a civil suit to get money. But I will allow the state to make the case that the charges weren't filed in 2004 for another reason and to give the people some leeway on that. We'll have to see what the people do with that, end quote. 
That concludes our recap through the end of Friday, October 28th. Court was dark on Monday and Tuesday. In our next episode, we'll pick up with the testimony from Wednesday, November 2nd. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And now with a review of recent witness testimony in the L.A. trial of Harvey Weinstein, here is Molly Miller. In our last episode, I covered opening statements in the trial of Harvey Weinstein, in addition to the majority of Jane Doe 1's testimony. Today, we return to our examination of the emotional proceedings, starting with the remainder of defense attorney Alan Jackson's blistering cross-examination of Jane Doe 1. During the final hours of Jane Doe 1's cross-examination, Alan Jackson displayed several pictures from the woman's social media account that were posted in the days after she claims she was raped by Weinstein. The photos included images of Jane Doe 1 posing with friends, walking a red carpet, and taking a smiling selfie in the hotel bathroom where Weinstein allegedly assaulted her. Jackson insinuated that Jane Doe 1 did not appear traumatized in the aftermath of the alleged rape. The woman explained that she posted the pictures because social media was essential to her career as a model, and quote, I was trying to act like nothing happened, end quote. Jackson culminated his cross-examination with a series of rapid-fire questions about Jane Doe's memories regarding the night of the alleged assault. He punctuated his line of inquiry by asking, quote, Did you hear a fire alarm blaring at 12.41 a.m. on February 18, 2013? End quote. Jackson stated that the alarm went off for four minutes on Jane Doe 1's floor during approximately the time frame that the woman claimed she was raped by Weinstein. Jane Doe 1 responded that she did not remember the fire alarm, to which Jackson retorted, quote, You didn't hear the fire alarm because you weren't in your room at 12.41 a.m. End quote. The defense counsel's insinuation throughout cross-examination seemed to be that Jane Doe 1 did not return to her hotel at all that evening because she was with L.A. Italia film festival producer Pascal Vicidomini. They have yet to provide evidence of that theory in court. The prosecution subsequently called Brock Taylor, the current manager of the hotel where the sexual assault allegedly occurred, to testify about guest folios in 2013. On cross-examination, the defense questioned Taylor about the fire alarms during Jane Doe 1's stay at the hotel. After reviewing the establishment's daily activity report, Taylor stated that there was evidence of a false fire alarm in the early morning hours of February 18. However, it was unclear which room was the source of the alarm. Later that day, the prosecution invited Ashley M. to the stand to testify as a prior bad acts witness. The woman strode across the courtroom in a black shirt with white cuffs and sleek black pants. When she sat in front of the microphone, she trembled and blotted her eyes. Before Deputy District Attorney Marlene Martinez could ask her first question, Ashley M. crumbled into tears and struggled to breathe. 
Judge Lynch called for a break to allow the witness to regain her composure. When court resumed, Ashley M. testified that she met Harvey Weinstein in 2003 on the set of Dirty Dancing Havana Nights, which was produced by Miramax and filmed in Puerto Rico. Ashley M. was a professional dancer and was working as a body double for one of the lead actors. She testified that Weinstein approached her on set and mentioned something about a naked massage. Ashley M. told Weinstein that she had a fiancé, but the producer was undeterred. She stated that at lunch, Weinstein ordered her to join him in a limo with his assistant. Ashley M. looked to the assistant for help. She said, quote, I gave her a look like, can you help me with my eyes? And she looked me in the eyes and said, don't worry, I'll be with you the entire time. He just wants to talk about future projects, end quote. Ashley M. testified that the limo dropped the three individuals off at Weinstein's hotel and that they went up to his room. Once there, the assistant let Ashley M. inside and she shut the door behind her, leaving Ashley alone with Weinstein. Ashley M. explained that at that point, Weinstein became aggressive. Quote, he eventually like shoved me on the bed and he ended up taking off my top and my clothes, my bra, end quote. Ashley testified that she was hysterical, but the producer attempted to quiet her down, saying, quote, It's not like we're having sex. It's just naked cuddling, end quote. According to Ashley, Weinstein then held her down and masturbated, ejaculating on her breasts and her face. Afterwards, Weinstein got dressed and drove with Ashley M. back to set. She testified that she was in tears the entire car ride. On cross-examination, defense counsel Mark Worksman questioned the nature of Ashley M's encounter with his client, implying that she knew Weinstein wanted sex and that she willingly went to his room to engage in sexual activity. Worksman asked why Ashley M didn't turn back at the hotel. Ashley M replied that Mr. Weinstein was her boss and she just didn't have the kind of personality to challenge him. On redirect examination, Ashley M. explained that she was intimidated because Weinstein made her feel like, quote, a piece of meat, end quote. After Ashley M. left the courtroom, the prosecution entered a full envelope of pictures into evidence. The pictures were described as photos of Harvey Weinstein, his face, neck, torso, and genitals. The defense and prosecution stipulated that in 1999, Weinstein was treated for Fournier's gangrene by the removal of some of his scrotal wall and the placement of his testicles in his thighs. The jury was then given the envelope of photos and sent to the jury room to review the images behind closed doors. The prosecution continued the presentation of its case on Monday, October 31st. Kelly S. took the stand mid-morning in a flowy blue blouse to testify as another prior bad acts witness. Under direct examination by Marlene Martinez, Kelly S. explained that she met Harvey Weinstein in 1991 at the Toronto International Film Festival. She was an ambitious, aspiring actress at the time and said she spoke with the producer about books, art, and movies. Kelly S. testified that their initial interaction was pleasant. Quote, We got along very well. He was intelligent and we had a wonderful conversation. End quote. She testified that Weinstein invited her to leave the party and get a glass of wine with him, and she accepted. At the next location, Weinstein mentioned that he had a script for an Irish film and that there might be a role for Kelly in it. 
Kelly S. told the court that he invited her up to his hotel room, ostensibly to show her the script. But when they got there, he went to the bathroom and came out naked, except for an unbuttoned shirt. She stated that she was stunned by the change in his behavior. Quote, I was in shock. It was so unexpected. We really sincerely were having a great time. End quote. Kelly S. claimed that Weinstein then took a hot washcloth and placed it on her vagina, saying, quote, My wife loves this. You're going to love this. End quote. She testified that she asked Weinstein to stop, but he continued to touch her. Quote, then he said, I'm going to fuck you. It won't take long. Just relax. End quote. Kelly S. alleged that Weinstein proceeded to penetrate her with his fingers before raping her. She grasped at his back in an attempt to get away and felt that it was, quote, mountainous with acne, end quote. She eventually struggled out of Weinstein's control and left the room. Kelly S. testified that after the incident, Weinstein called her several times. At one point, she asked him why he raped her. And Kelly recalled that he said, quote, that's not what happened. I really, really like you. I'd leave my wife for you, end quote. Eventually, the producer invited her to New York to meet with a woman who did casting for his company, and Kelly S. agreed to go. Weinstein paid for her airfare and hotel, but didn't show up to a dinner he planned with her, and Kelly never went to the audition. DDA Martinez asked the witness why she went to New York for the man who assaulted her. Kelly took a deep breath and responded, quote, it's a good question. I thought it was a really good opportunity and one I didn't think I could pass up. Kelly didn't see Weinstein again until 2008 when her family was living at the Four Seasons Hotel in Toronto, the same hotel where Weinstein assaulted her. Kelly testified that she was in the middle of lunch when Weinstein walked by and she said hello to him. Later on, Weinstein's assistant approached Kelly and said that Harvey wanted to see her. Kelly explained, quote, I wanted to see him because I wanted to ask him after all this time what had happened all those years ago. I wanted to confront him, and I thought about it often, end quote. The assistant led Kelly up to Weinstein's suite where the film mogul was speaking on the phone. After he hung up, Kelly said that she blurted out, quote, how does it feel to be in front of the one woman who said no to you, end quote. Kelly testified that Weinstein told his assistant to leave the room, and then he maneuvered Kelly into the bathroom. Kelly kept speaking, trying to get answers from the man who allegedly assaulted her decades before. According to Kelly, Weinstein didn't listen to her. Instead, he propositioned her for sex, again. Kelly recalled saying, quote, My husband and children are downstairs. I have to get out of here. Let's stop this. That's enough. End quote. Kelly testified that when she denied Weinstein sex, he trapped her in the bathroom by blocking the door with his body and then proceeded to masturbate in front of her. Afterwards, Kelly left the hotel room. She said she felt angry and stupid. DDA Martinez asked if the incident affected her personal life. Kelly tried to hold back her tears as she said, quote, it hurt my marriage because I didn't tell him. It's been really hard, end quote. On cross-examination, defense attorney Alan Jackson asked if Kelly found Mr. Weinstein to be fetching when she first met him. Kelly responded that she thought parts of him were fetching, but she did not find him physically attractive. 
Jackson continued his line of questioning, implying that Kelly went to Weinstein's room willingly and may have engaged in sexual acts to gain favor with a powerful producer. Jackson asked why Kelly agreed to go to New York with her alleged rapist, to which she responded that she was naive and didn't know how things worked in the entertainment industry. Closing out his cross-examination, Jackson zeroed in on Kelly S.'s decision to wait until after the Me Too movement hit Hollywood to report the assault. Jackson asserted that Kelly S. changed her story, quote, because if you had consensual sex with the likes of Mr. Weinstein, the Me Too monster, you would never be able to explain yourself to your husband or family and live with yourself. The prosecution objected to the statement, and the judge sustained the objection. Okay, joining me now for a discussion of their trial reports are jury duty correspondents Molly Miller and Brittany Bookbinder. Molly, Brittany, welcome back. Glad to be back, Carrie. Hi, Carrie. Brittany, let's start with you. What do you think was the cumulative impact of Jane Doe 3's direct testimony on the jury specifically? I mean, I feel like the prosecution's case had been veering off course and her testimony sort of righted the ship. You know, she, I think, had a profound impact on the jury. Of course, in some ways, she's different than the other two victims. She was in a romantic relationship with Masterson. And because there was so much history between them, and she said at one point that she loved him in spite of what happened, I thought her testimony was really powerful. And I also think she was a good witness, specifically as an entry point for the jury in this case. Because, you know, Jane Doe One, who the jury heard from first, was already a Scientologist. And there were times when she sort of had trouble trans translating words and concepts from the Scientology playbook into normal speech. Whereas, you know, Jane Doe 3 was from the South. She was raised Christian. And I think, you know, like a lot of people in the entertainment industry, she came to LA to live her dream and she was pretty successful when she met him. Her star was kind of on the rise and Masterson was an out-of-work actor when they met. And so I think it was easy for the jury to understand where she was coming from as a young and impressionable 18-year-old whose life really took a turn after meeting Masterson. Well, you indicated that you thought the defense was effective in at least part of its cross-examination of Jane Doe 3. What was your sense of the overall effectiveness of Jane Doe 3 as a witness for the prosecution, including the impact of the cross-examination? Right. I mean, I do think the defense scored some points. I have a feeling that she probably immediately regretted saying, well, I've never blacked out, but I've woken up and, you know, not remembered everything. But it was a very honest answer. And I think that honesty really came through to the jury. And even though I'm sure that Cohen will make a meal of that during closing arguments, I don't really think it did much to damage her credibility. Overall, I think she was a very effective witness. She was very careful to be thorough and making sure that she was understanding the questions questions that were being asked of her and to be honest in her answers. And so I think, you know, based on everything that she was both impactful and credible. Molly, the cross-examination of Jane Doe 1 in the Weinstein case seems to have been consistent with the strategy of deny and scorn Weinstein's accusers that you've identified at least as a apparent strategy for the defense. What's your sense of the effectiveness of all this on the jury and particularly with respect to Jane Doe 1? 
So Alan Jackson's tone with Jane Doe One was certainly condescending, dismissive, dare I say rude. And I think to understand that tactically, we have to remember the defense is arguing that the incidents alleged by Jane Doe One and Jane Doe Two never happened. This is not a situation where the defense is saying, yes, Mr. Weinstein had a sexual relationship with this woman, but now she's relabeling it as rape. No, for Jane Doe's One and Two, the defense story is there was no encounter at all. And I think that's part of the reason that Jackson was so sharp with Jane Doe One on cross-examination. Now, in general, I don't think that Cross was effective. In pretrial motions, it was clear that the defense really thought they had an ace up their sleeve with this witness because in a police statement, she gave a description of Weinstein's genitals that is not consistent with his actual anatomy. But when she was on the stand, she was really upfront about the discrepancy and admitted that she was confused about what she saw, which kind of took the wind out of the defense's sails. Now, the one moment with Jane Doe One where it seemed like Jackson had scored some points was when he asked her if she heard the fire alarm the night that she alleges Weinstein raped her. And at first, to me at least, this seemed like a really big deal. I personally imagined a fire alarm that was heard throughout the hotel, something that required an evacuation. But later, when the prosecution brought the general manager of the hotel to the stand, this whole notion of the blaring fire alarm deflated because it turns out that the rooms had individual fire alarms. And it seems that that was the kind of alarm that went off the night of the alleged incident. So we don't know exactly which room the alarm went off in, which means it's possible that Jane Doe One never heard anything at all. Interesting. Brittany, the testimony of Cedric Z seems to have not only supported his wife Jane Doe 3's allegations against Masterson, but also her assertion that the Church of Scientology engaged in a campaign of harassment against them. First, what do you think the impact of Cedric Z's testimony was? I thought Cedric Z was a great witness. He, like Jane Doe 3, was very well-spoken, very calm, listened carefully to the questions, and I think gave what read as very honest answers. And clearly, you know, this is somebody who loves his wife a great deal and probably has a lot of anger toward Masterson, but he was really able to articulate his memories and his point of view and only answer the questions that were being asked of him. So I thought he was also a very effective witness. And do you think that the defense was able to damage his credibility or Jane Doe 3's credibility with the suggestion that they had coordinated their testimonies with each other and with Masterson's other accusers? I really don't think so. I mean, it's hard to say because I could imagine the jury hearing the fact that they are suing Masterson for money. But, you know, everybody has testified, Jane Doe 3, Cedric, and Jane Doe 1, they've all testified that the civil suit isn't about the money, even though they are seeking damages, I think they've all explained themselves in such a way that made it clear that to them, it isn't about the money. They're suing for peace. They want their lives back. And of course, it costs money. So that's an element. But I don't think in their minds, that's the main point. So I think especially with Jane Doe 3 and Cedric, that by the end, there was minimal damage done to their credibility. And Molly, the testimonies of Ashley M. and Kelly S., who were, as I understand it, prior acts 
facts witnesses. In other words, they weren't filing charges. They're not complainants against Weinstein, but their allegations are supporting the allegations of the complaining witnesses in this case. It sounds like those testimonies would have had a profound emotional impact on the jury. What was it like in the courtroom? Well, it did have a profound emotional impact. I found myself having a really hard time taking notes during certain points of their testimony. I think because there is this empathetic response when somebody is so raw and so vulnerable and telling their story, it's hard not to look them directly in the eyes or at least try to, I think, from a human perspective. I spoke to a few reporters around me and they had the same sense that it at times can feel almost disrespectful, even though the notes you're taking are in service of, you know, telling their story and telling the story of their alleged sexual assailant. I would say that the jury seemed engaged, but it's still hard to tell for certain because they are wearing masks. They were all facing the witnesses and their heads were all up, but that's about all I can say. I will note that with Ashley M. and Kelly S., the cross-examination was much softer. And I do think that's because the defense isn't arguing that these women never had sexual incidents with their client. They're simply putting forth a theory that these women are relabeling what happened after the Me Too movement. Either that or someone told them that Jackson's approach with Jane Doe 1 was cringeworthy. But my bet here is that this is definitely tactical. There have been emotional breakdowns by witnesses recounting these experiences in both courtrooms. How are the respective judges in each of these cases handling moments where witnesses seem to have some verging on a panic attack or breaking down. Brittany, let's start with you and the Masterson case. Yeah, Judge Olmedo has been great at staying aware of what's going on in her courtroom in general. And when it comes to a witness on the stand having an emotional reaction or in one case having what appeared to be a panic attack, she's shown compassion and a willingness to put the proceedings on hold. I think in the case of Jane Doe 3, you know, it was interesting because she didn't want to take a break. I think partially because she felt responsible for holding things up, but also she seemed very nervous and even afraid to go outside into the hallway. And it wasn't clear who she thought might have been out there or what was potentially going to happen if she did step out of the courtroom. And, you know, she's made vague statements about the harassment that she's experienced. So, you know, in light of that, Judge Almeida was fine with, you know, having her stay on the stand and just take whatever time she needed to collect herself before continuing. And wasn't it her husband who said that there was some form of intimidation that happened as recently as the day he testified, even though that was never specified? They both said that, yes. Wow. Molly, how about in the Weinstein courtroom? How have those emotional moments, particularly moments where the witness loses control, how has the judge in that case handled those situations? So Judge Lynch has been very comfortable with taking breaks. So really, there's a lot of checking in with the witnesses while they're on the stand, seeing if they need a moment, if they need 10 minutes, if we need to just go to lunch early. So there's been a lot of flexibility there. There was also a moment with Ashley M, who really had a profound reaction even before the questioning began. She had a bit of a breakdown just upon sitting 
at the stand. And in response to that, Judge Lynch did have a very quiet conversation with her that was completely inaudible. But I think that it was reflective of the fact that she was really checking in with the witness and engaging with her. And I thought it read as rather compassionate. And is there a sense that they're trying to balance any respect for the trauma that these women are reliving against any prejudicial impact that that trauma might have on or against the defendants in the cases? Definitely. In the case of Judge Olmedo, you know, she always sends the jury out of the room as soon as something like that happens. And one time there was an instant with somebody else, I think Jane Doe one, where the defense objected that during an emotional moment, you know, perhaps they could hear on the microphone by the witness stand what was being said. And Judge Olmedo said, no, I was watching her. No words were said. She was crying and that was it. So she's paying attention, but she is making sure that for the most part, this happens outside of the eyes and ears of the jury. I would say that the same is really going on in the Weinstein court. I think that Judge Lynch is doing almost everything that she can to separate the jury from the witness's trauma, or at least their traumatic response. They're certainly having to hear about the trauma itself. But at a certain point, I think that you can't separate a person's emotion from their account of what happened. And that's just a reality of a jury trial. And it is evidence. I mean, as we've seen in the times that Judge Almeida in the Masterson case has allowed hearsay evidence in because it's used not for the truth of the statement, but for the impact on the listener of the statement. Similarly, the emotional impact of these incidents are evidence in the case. Okay, well, let me give you guys a chance to offer up any other observations about the last few days of witness testimony and the vibe and atmosphere in each of these courtrooms. Brittany, let's start with you. Absolutely. So one thing that has been a frequent topic of conversation among the journalists in the back is the fact that the prosecution is calling witnesses in a rather strange and confusing order. I think at first the understanding was that the witnesses would be called, you know, Jane Doe 1 and then all of the witnesses pertaining to Jane Doe 1's count and then so on and so forth. And Marty Singer, who is an attorney, was supposed to come in, you know, pertaining to Jane Doe 1's count and then because of a scheduling issue was not able to come in in sequence. But then we jumped ahead to Jane Doe 3. And so now that the jury has heard about these two victims, and you know, they're not just recounting the two counts that are the counts in this case. They're recounting many incidents that involve Masterson only some of which are actually counts. So I think it's a little confusing when we're hearing all of the details that other witnesses are corroborating or in some cases dispelling, I think it might be a little tricky to kind of keep that all straight. But the jurors are taking notes and they seem to be, you know, paying attention. There was one thing that happened at the end of the day on Friday. Deputy DA Anson brought up that there was one juror who had closed their eyes a couple times and she was afraid maybe he had fallen asleep. And the judge wasn't sure that that was absolutely what was happening, but she said she would keep an eye on it. So we'll see if there's any more changes to the makeup of the jury going forward. And Molly, anything from you? 
Yeah, I would say the one thing that was rather odd and really made us all hold our breath was that on Friday, the prosecution entered an envelope of pictures into evidence. And we did not see these pictures, but they were pictures of Harvey Weinstein, of his chest, his face, his torso, and his genitals. Numerous, numerous pictures. And so what happened was the envelope was then passed to the jury. And each juror opened up the envelope and started to look through the pictures. And there are a lot of pictures. And so, of course, all the journalists and I were watching their faces and trying to gauge a reaction to the photos. But it took so long for a few of the jurors to go through the photos that eventually Judge Lynch just had all of the jurors take the envelope back to the jury room to look at the pictures together, which is interesting because it's kind of the closest thing you could get to deliberations without going into to deliberations. And I think it could potentially be risky because the question arises, well, did they discuss the photos or their opinions of the photos while they were looking at them? And so as I was talking to the reporters around me, that was just something that seemed to be strange and definitely of note. Well, Brittany, Molly, thanks again for these fascinating insights. And as always, we look forward to your next round of reports. Thanks, Gary. Thanks, Gary. See you next time. And with that, we conclude this episode of Jury Duty, The Trials of Weinstein and Masterson. Join us on our next installment as we hear more from Molly and Brittany about the state's witness testimonies in both of these sexual assault trials. Also, if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You can find more information about these trials on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. It was reported and written by Molly Miller and Brittany Bookbinder. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trials of Weinstein and Masterson.